0: The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Collective Whisper podcast. And I'm your host, Simon Kay. So today we have a very interesting guest on the show, and we're going to talk about him in a few minutes. But before we do, just like to remind you please like and follow the show and share with everybody you know, and we will continue bringing you great guests. Thank you very much. So today I'm going to talk to Andrew McGinley. On the 24th of January 2022, marked two years since Andrew McGinley's beloved children, Connor Nine, Dara Seven and Carl Three were killed by their mother Deirdre Morley at their family home in Newcastle County Dublin Mr McGinley feels he is no closer to understanding why his children died Mrs Morley was found not guilty of their murder by reason of insanity and was committed to the Central Mental Hospital Mrs Morley a highly trained paediatric and renal nurse is currently in the care of the Central Mental Hospital both Mr McGinley and Mrs Morley are now suing the HSE the governors of St Patrick's Hospital and the named person the legal action is a bid to highlight the need for improvements in Ireland's mental health care system that Mr. McGinley said. Mr. McGinley has been campaigning for changes in mental health care and for new amendments to mental health legislation so that supportive families of people who are mentally ill are involved in their care. He has been campaigning on the issue with Cork woman Una Butler, whose two children, Zoe 6 and Ella 2, were killed by their father, her late husband, John Butler, before he killed himself in 2010 in Ballycotton. Andrew McGinley has said that he has set up three legacy projects he established in his children's names and these are now what drive him. The charity is called As Dara Did. And this is set up in memory of Connor, Dara, and Carla. Okay, Andrew McGinley, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you very much. much. It's a pleasure to have you on, Andrew.
1: No, uh, delighted to be here to, to talk about the kids.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. We can understand, obviously, you know, the events and what happened. It's a sensitive subject and it can be very challenging and difficult for you to talk about sometimes. But, you know, I have to commend you for your bravery in being able to talk about it and to, you know, let the legacy of the kids live on and, and all the charity work you're doing and keeping their memory alive is a, an amazing thing.
1: Yeah, well, I think if you talk to anybody who has children they love talking about their own kids and I'm no different they're my favorite subject and uh, the legacy projects that I'm doing and their memories are
0: very important to me brilliant that's really nice yeah obviously you know now we're kind of it's two years later from when it all happened those two years have they seemed like a really long time to you or have you felt they've gone by and it just hits you more some days
1: I know it feels like a handful of months. It feels like about six months. Yeah, yeah. Really? Um, pretty much. Yeah. It's it's, yeah. it's it's sometimes it's like time has just stood still and hard to process everything. And you just look at the next milestone. Previously, it was the trial. Now it's like the coroner's court. I'm told may not happen until 2023. Obviously, there's ongoing bits and pieces with um, the HSC and and St Patrick's, and so there's just milestones that. Are a few months apart, but those few months just seem to fly by. Yeah, time has sort of taken on a different, a whole different perspective for me, but the last two years just literally feel like a handful of months
0: i can imagine because obviously on anniversaries then the children's birthdays you know all these are as you said they're very important days and milestones but then you have other days coming up like where you've as you said court cases and coroner's verdicts and all sorts of things happening so sometimes when you look back it kind of must seem like it's a blur and it's very surreal like it never happened but then you have the harsh reality of it has happened and you have to Move on with it.
1: A lot of the times, it's the complications that come with how the how Connor, Darren, Carla died uh, that are are the most difficult. Um, had they had they died a, a, a simple death, then you wouldn't have all the, the the legal aspects and the and the other bits and pieces that that go on. And there, I think is what what drains you, what just puts a, a strain on your your what bit of energy you have. Um, there—that's the most difficult side of it. Like the the complications that come with how they how they died—is—is is, that's the hardest part to 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 manage and to deal with.
0: I don't want to deal with the events of what happened. But one thing I'm curious about after it all, and and I—it's it, a word that jumps out at me—is questions? Because, you know, from the research I've done after it all, you obviously still have a lot of questions and there's a lot of questions to be answered, whether it's from the HSC or, you know, the, the the reports. And so is that something that you wake up every day with these questions that you desperately need answers for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I know the exact details of how the children died. And it was even at the trial that there was information that came out of the trial that I wasn't aware of and you still that you just want to know everything so that you can I don't know how to describe it I mean it's, it's I, I look at the case in Northern Ireland of Noah Donahue and his mother Fiona and just the gaps that's between what she knows and what possibly other people know and I just I i, I can emphasize with that it's, it's just you want to know everything so that you have all the information you, and it's not a it's not a blame game its it's you just want to know why certain people made certain decisions, what was their thinking, why did they do that, why didn't they do something else? You just need to know for your own peace of mind, but as time goes by, you just get more frustrated if the answers aren't forthcoming to the extent that two years had had passed, and still the h s pardon me the h s e review hadn't taken place Um, I believe they had a uh, preliminary review that they completed yes but felt they weren't in a position to share that with me and it's almost like you're you're forced down certain pathways just to get answers and it's frustrating and it's you just build up not anger, anger isn't the right word for it, but you just get so frustrated with people not giving you the answers, but yeah, like recently, just in the last while i I found out that there was um that there's a couple of people uh that myself and Dee knew who knew that Deirdre had had suicidal thoughts, and they didn't tell me, so they made a conscious decision not to tell me. And I feel physically sick at that thought. You know, that's that's on them. You know, what's what's done is done at the time they made a decision, but kept that from me and but now I'm aware of it.
0: Why do you think they kept it from you? Was it because Deirdre asked them to maybe, or you know, did you not have a good relationship with them that they would tell you?
1: These are people that I, I, I trusted. Okay. Um okay. so I just I do not know but it's it's not something for this podcast but um no no every now and again just something crops up um that just takes sets you back really and you 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 almost have to gain momentum again and yes because there's still a long way to go uh, to 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 I suppose get all the information, all the answers that that I would like.
0: Can I ask you about, you know, obviously the files that you received from the St. Patrick's Mental Health Services? This is quite interesting, the fact that they were heavily redacted and the fact that as, as far as I hope and I'm correct in saying this, that Deirdre gave the consent and you would imagine then there would have been an open book then you could have been able to see. So why do you think and who was the one that wanted them redacted?
1: Well, we, the copy of the medical records that I received were from, from Deirdre. So they were given to her redacted. Okay. And I think it would seem from my uh, uh, My belief, looking at what I've received from St. Patrick's and and some of the correspondents, is that they have their own sort of interpretation of the GDPR uh, regulations. um, And that was their reason for redacting. But I would think that I know all the people. Deirdre knows all the people. So why would her medical records be redacted to her? I just don't get it. Um, And it just, again, causes... Causes annoyance and aggravation, and and you know if if the the search for information and and answers, I would hope that everybody would want to cooperate with both myself and Deirdre in in that. Even though we're we're looking at this, uh, I suppose separately, but um, I just I just can't understand why they would send redacted records. I really don't.
0: Yeah, do you think in some way they were trying to protect her from? you know, reading exactly what was in them?
1: I can't think so. She requested her own medical records. So, you know, she would have been the one attending those meetings. And so she knows what went on in the meetings. And they were just handed to her, redacted. I just... doesn't make much sense to me to be quite honest
0: yeah i mean this is the thing even in in you know cases like this there's so much bureaucracy and obviously as you know well with court cases and with mental health records and everything it's kind of like a minefield of bureaucracy because you get these documents and you imagine they would be more you know clear and they would tell you and inform you of what happened and especially for you being left behind that you would want to know what exactly happened and the Details of her illness and everything, but it's a shame that there's somebody in there that can't kind of go. Look, this is too much. There's too much red tape here, too much redaction. Do we not have the original documents? You know, that's such a shame.
1: Well, hence she end up having to take a legal action. For now, whatever energy I have that I would rather be putting into the legacy projects is going to be zapped by going through a court process. You know, whether it be Lindsay Bennett, Vicky Phelan, you know, just. It seems to be that listen, let the courts deal with it and it shouldn't be the way. I mean, the amount of people who have had to go through the courts just to get answers, and that's all I'm seeking, is I just want to have all the information about my children and the circumstances around their deaths.
0: I saw there actually as well when you're you're naming these other people, you know, with similar kind of cases and everything. Own a button. Yeah. And, and and that case. So can you tell us a little about that?
1: Well, Una has been campaigning for family inclusion since uh, her daughters, uh, Zoe and Ella, died. And had the changes that Una saw, had those changes been made, I would be 99.999% sure that Connor, Darren Carter would be alive today. So as it stands at the moment, within the recommendations of the Mental Health Act, there's a, 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 an, a thing called proactive encouragement where the the professionals treating the patient are proactively encouraged or sorry they they are rec- it's a recommendation that they proactively encourage the patient to include their family or to appoint an advocate now where there would be a loving and supportive circle of people around the patient and in Deirdre's case there was um, family inclusion would have just been a, a, a Uh, it would have saved saved Connor, Darren, Carla, without a doubt. When I look back at what I now know, but that I didn't know before, um, their lives would have been saved. So 10 years ago, that legislation could have been changed. Proactive encouragement could have been taken out of uh, recommendations. It could have been added in as a law that proactive encouragement is carried out at every opportunity with the patient. Should it be counselling or should it be a psychiatric uh, meeting? if that was the case then yeah things would have changed things would be different i would be sitting here with connor darren Carla today um so is it going to take i hope it just it's it's not going to take another 10 years uh for this to change but the recommendations for the mental health act have been knocking around since i think 2015 uh they still haven't been presented to the doll for voting on um the draft that i saw i can only call it a reshuffling of the deck chairs on the Titanic with some additional backside covering added in. There's no substance in them. There seems to be more concern about definitions and, as I say, backside covering as opposed to making real patient-centric change. It seems to be, uh, there's talk about the expert group and the expert group were brought together to put these recommendations together. It's experts talking about what they think as opposed to what patients actually need. Um, so for me, in their current guys the recommendations aren't worth the paper they're written on.
0: Now, obviously, you know, because you know, life is a learning curve in with good and bad and everything. So for you now, because, you know, even though you have no aspirations, but then you fall into this thing of being an advocate for these people who have been in similar situations and the bureaucracy is kind of stopping them. Is there a lot that you have learned, obviously, with your own case, but with the other cases, too? Is there a lot that you have learned that other families, can be aware of because like this situation looking at the events of what happened and as you said in it that you never knew and nobody ever sees any signs and sometimes it's a bit like suicide where nobody sees the signs and the person is very bright and bubbly and and maybe as you said something has happened and they're still as normal so Is that something that other families who are in stressful situations or have mental health situations with the husband or the wife, is that something that you and other advocates can, you know, help teach people the signs?
1: I've struggled to find the words how to describe the normality of our life with mental health illness. Um, Deirdre was a loving mother to the kids. She, you know, she was Preparing their 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 lunches, you know, helping with homework. She was an active part of the of the house of the family. Um, on the day on the twenty fourth of January, twenty twenty, I had three phone calls with her that were all completely normal. And this was after the the children had died. Um, she engaged with people at the school after Darren Carla had died. I just can't, and I don't think anybody will understand the normality of that. And the only way I could have had a better understanding was had I been included by the professional services. So Deirdre attending for, for mental health services one or two hours a week for the under, other 160 plus hours she was at home with me and the children. So there was probably nobody better placed to assist with her care and treatment and recovery than than me. but. My only source of information was Deirdre. And of all the people in Deirdre's life, I know that she did not want me to know how bad she was. And at a time in the weeks before the kids died, at a time when we thought she was on the road to recovery and she was talking about going back to work and was in in good spirits, the professional services thought she was in decline. So both our, our opinions were polar opposites, but there was no channels of communication with either side other than Deirdre the patient. So family inclusion for me, just this, it it has to happen. And whilst I understand that not all patients may have a, a loving and supported circle around them, there is always somebody, an advocate that they could appoint, should it be a friend or a relation, who can be that, that channel of communication to, to everybody else so that the patient can be better supported.
0: Do you think that... In Deirdre's case, that she was trying to protect you, or she had a fear that you would look at her differently or see her differently if you knew she was in decline.
1: I honestly don't know. I I think she, because I I suppose I was looking after the the children. The main concern was that the children wouldn't be concerned. So we had told Connor, Darren, Carla that yeah, you know, Mom had gone into hospital because her energy levels were were low because you know she needed to eat more fruit and vegetables and. You know, after that, the three of them were, were hoovering up broccoli and peas and everything else. So that was her main concern, was that the kids wouldn't be worried. So I honestly don't know, but I would just imagine she didn't want me worrying. I mean, we'd always talked about that because she was seeing the professionals, that that they were the ones, you know, to, to, to help her. And that for me to concentrate, I suppose, on, on the kids and, uh, you know, you still have a mortgage, you still have... You know, you need to keep earning to keep the, the lights on and food on the table. So that was that was how we kind of dealt with it. I mean, for me, I knew nothing about mental health. So for me, she was with the right people, the professionals. But now looking back, I just wish that they had reached out to me to say, right, you know, we we would like to include you so that they can be supported at, at home as well. And here's some signs that you need to look out for. I mean, I've, I've probably learned more from the Pieter House website than I ever learned from anybody treating D.
0: Wow, that's shocking because you imagine a family is like a team and if if one person in the team is suffering in some way and the other members can help them they should know all the facts and even if that person doesn't want to tell them i mean the person who's treating them should say well the father should be included here and he can help the situation but also he's the best person to see the signs and to tell us is there are there things that are different because unfortunately with, with mental illness people can disguise things and hide things to protect other people, but also to protect their own diagnosis so that maybe they're, they have a fear of being out of the house or anything happening. So unfortunately, you need someone very close to them to see these things, don't you?
1: Well, I just think that myself and Deirdre were 18 years together. There was nobody who knew her better than me, you know, and not one question has been asked of me about how my life was with Deirdre by anybody yeah. treating her. Yeah. And as I say, for they they were seeing her for one or two hours a week for the hundred the, the, the remaining hundred and sixty six hours she was in the house with us. So that makes no sense.
0: That doesn't make sense because you know especially when you consider just even the traditional family, you know, be a husband being happy. And the first thing, obviously, a doctor or, or a psychiatrist would ask is, well, how is your home life? Are, are you happy with your husband or your spouse or your partner? Are, have you a good life together? And if you say, no, we don't, we fight all the time and say, well, OK, that can lead to stress and that's not helping. But I mean, you have to include that. that. That's part of the whole thing, isn't it? I mean, how how is your life with your partner? That's a huge question.
1: It is. I mean, um, we were sharing a, a a life. We were sharing a house. We were sharing a bed. It was we. It was. I as I say, there was nobody. I think better placed. But I just needed that guidance. I needed that information. What I was seeing, you know, was somebody who, for all intents and purposes, was 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 chatting about going back to work and whose spirit seemed to have lifted. But now I know that and again it's from more from pieta house um that when somebody who has a mind to take their own life when they make peace with that decision their mood lifts so that's what i was seeing but i didn't know that now i do so guidance guidance is is is. i i see I, i've talked to so many people over the last 2 years and and you know it's even along a similar vein, is i is talk to people who have lost loved ones to, to uh, drug overdoses and drug usage. And they say, you know, guidance, if you, you know, if your loved one is getting treatment, what you need then is the guidance, because they come back to you, they come back to your house. If you don't know the signs, or if you don't know what you should be looking out for, if you don't know who to call, it's, it's you you can't support the patient in the way that you want to.
0: It's the key thing. It's a piece of the jigsaw puzzle that's missing, because if you don't have that, the whole treatment and the things you're trying to do for the patient can't work as effectively. And it's kind of shocking that in this day and age in the mental health system, they don't realize that, that, we you know, we hear it every day in our life, how family is so important, friendship, friends. And, you know, if if it was a friend who was in need, of help and some kind of counseling. I imagine, you know, Pieta House and Samaritans and these would say, is there, have you a friend you can talk to? Is there somebody? I mean, it just seems weird. Here's a question I have for you. It's probably like a delicate question. So, you know, when we hear of somebody taking their own life or having a desire to take their own life, that's one thing. But then obviously when we have somebody who wants to take their own life or decides to, and then they take the lives of somebody alongside them, whether that be children or family members or an older mother or father, because they don't want that person to suffer. So they have this kind of like a delusion thought that if they go, there'll be nothing left for the children. So for you, looking back at that, that obviously is really difficult to bear too. because I know if it was me, I would be thinking, I have three kids and I'd be thinking, you know, okay, well, if I could do nothing for that, my wife to make that decision. But then, obviously, for the kids to be involved too, you know, you're thinking, why do they have to be involved? Because I'm still here. So was that something you wrestled with for a long time and still do, probably?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult. You can't change what has happened, but you can't help but think through different scenarios uh, if things had been different. But I just struggle with... with I mean, I could imagine... I, 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 because it's such a serious subject, I don't want to make uh, uh, um, uh, comp- like light, lightweight f- comparisons. But
0: no, 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 just just speak honestly. Yeah,
1: if you've ever broken a leg before, you can almost imagine what it's like to have a broken leg. If you've dislocated, or somebody you know has dislocated a shoulder, you could almost oh, geez, that you know the com- this, you can almost imagine what that would be like. But with mental health, how the state of mind of a mental health uh, patient with with an illness, how their mind is. I'm a very logical and practical person, so I, I struggle to understand that state of mind.
0: Okay, I I understand completely. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I think it's the one thing. I mean, even you know, my my own father has had cancer battles. I I understand, and I can almost think, well, oh, geez, if I had the same and the treatment, you can almost. Put yourself into into that sort of mindset, but I can't put myself into a mindset of of of, of what was going through Deirdre's mind. I just I can't, um, you know.
0: Yeah, I but, but I I understand because it's one of these situations where. You know, there are things in life we have to deal with, like mental health and situations in in our lives or alcoholism or whatever problems that you mightn't have, but somebody else does. But you kind of can imagine the situation. But that's just it's like a different language nearly because you say, oh, well. That's how I say it in this language. But in another language, the words are all in a different order. So for somebody who has mental health issues, the way they think and the way they rationale things and use logic in that situation is completely different. And I don't think anyone can ever understand, only the professionals and people who have been in that situation. So it's a very hard thing to get your head around, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I've had a, a number of people who have reached out to me to say that, you know, they had found themselves in in similar situations to Deirdre and that that they hadn't actually gone through with the act. But through their recovery, they can see that they very nearly did. And that must be very difficult to live with. But they were open and honest with me, trying to help me understand. But it is, as I say, very difficult to put yourself into that mindset. And uh, I, I just can't. I would think that the first thought you had of harming somebody else that you would cry out for help but obviously the mental illness is is stopping you from doing so you believe it's the right thing but um i just wish as i say from from the work go that the clinicians treating deirdre ahead of had it given, you know, it had included me and given me more guidance and more support so that I could give that support to her.
0: everything since then and the work you're doing with the with the kids charities and, and coming on podcasts and shows like this. I think the great thing about it is that you're taking a terrible situation you have. You're kind of shining a light for other families who could be going through these things right now. Other dads or mothers who look at their partner and say, well, they're having mental health issues and I'm going to ask more questions of the clinicians or the doctors. I'm going to demand more. And just in the event that something terrible was ever to happen like this, because it comes like a bolt from the blue, nobody would ever see it. So the thing in these situations is I think there are more people out there like those honest people that spoke to you who have gone through these situations where they felt like they were you know, on the verge of cracking and they felt stress in their life and that they shouldn't be there. And unfortunately, they looked at their children as being victims of this and they shouldn't be there too. So I think this happens much more than people will speak about, but we need to shine a light on that more, don't we?
1: I've taken it now that because there was very little talked about with me, is that I'm going to continue talking. And if anybody can pick up one thing that helps them from what I say, then brilliant. I did a HSE actually uh, webinar last week. It was for um, the School of Midwifery and Nursing and it was about traumatic bereavement. They host these um, webinars and it's for the Gardaí and for social workers and for nurses and doctors and it's about traumatic bereavement. It was tough. I ain't going to lie to you. I cried my way through it, but I just felt it was important for those people on that call to understand, I suppose, the other side of the trauma and the bereavement. And from the messages that have come in afterwards, a lot of them took a lot from it. And as I say, if one person took one thing that helped somebody else, then brilliant. That's all I want. So if somebody listens to this and hears something and and it helps to save a life or to save their partner or their loved one or any benefit then brilliant that's why i talk and that's why i'll continue talking
0: you've raised a very important point there is that like for you that day when you arrive on that scene you have all those emergency workers and garadi and healthcare workers, maybe every, but they have to deal with these situations on maybe not regular basis, but quite frequently. And the guards and the the ambulance services, they see lots of cases where maybe children's lives are taken or a wife's life is taken or murder cases. And it is pretty traumatic. And, And the PTSD must be horrific for some people from it. And it probably makes some people change their career because they've seen things that they can't get out of their head. So I can imagine you being at that conference or that webinar and you're seeing the the harsh reality of the work they do, don't you?
1: One of the questions that came out was looking back at all the services that I, I dealt with, what was the one sort of, um, was there anybody that stood out or was there any comment that somebody said that stood out? And um, when I come into the house, I had discovered Connor's body. Um, I knew straight away there was no sign of life, but there was a paramedic who had been outside with Deirdre who came in and straight away she went to Connor and uh, there was no sign of life. And I remember the look on her face was just, and she immediately broke down in tears. But uh, some of the fire brigade who had attended as well, they'd gone upstairs and had obviously found uh, Dara and Carla. So um, I wanted to go up to see Dara and Carla. And there was two firemen blocking my way. So there was effectively a wrestling match at the bottom of the stairs. And then a voice from behind me said, let him go, let him go. And I learned out later that it was the the, the senior fireman. But he obviously knew that I had to go up. There was going to be no stopping me. So oh. that I, I just remember he understood. So whether he picked that up from another uh incident that he attended or whether he learned that at a webinar i don't know but he understood whereas the other two i suppose thought you know it was a distressing scene upstairs not to let me up but he knew so if anybody so when i relay that um again to the uh on the call hopefully there'll be people who will realize that yeah you know that and sim- if they ever attend a similar circumstance again, that if the person in question wants wants to go up, then, you, you know, maybe give them a bit of support and, and bring them up. But there's, there's no stopping them, you know.
0: And, you know, it's like I, I feel it. I, I have that emotion in my voice now because I, I feel you're kind of just even in you, you know, you're very calm and you're speaking about the whole situation and it's bringing back memories. But even for me, it's making me emotional now because listening to you and I mean, you're, you're just so brave. I, I can understand how those police officers would be so distraught. But the thing is, I suppose they get over it. But for you, you have to live this every day. So how do you or how have you dealt with the grief? I mean, how have you do, do you try and have a routine for yourself or you know, do you try and not be in situations where it brings back? Too many memories.
1: Every single morning, it hits me like a sledgehammer when I wake up. It this um, is the first thing that that hits you, and then you get up and start your day. I try to get a bit of a routine, but um, there's days where you're just not at the races. You're just you're just lost in a in a bit of thought. But I try and get up and and do a bit of exercise. I either go for a walk, or i I've a, a, a bike and punch bag and stuff like that. So I um, try and do something. But it's the legacy projects that I've started that honestly get me up and going. So after that initial, as I say, sledgehammer blow, I start thinking about right, what am I going to do today for for the projects? And those projects sprung into my mind. I remember it was the night that they the uh, the kids died, and after the initial interview, I was out of the house. The house was a crime scene, so you're told, you know, you need to leave, you're out. And I remember standing outside and just looking at the house and there's people around me and they're talking to me, but I couldn't honestly tell you what anybody said or, or who even was there. And I, I remember looking at the house and it was just bathed in blue flashing lights from all the services. And the thought that ran through my head was myself and Connor hadn't got around to doing his YouTube channel. Literally about, it was... The week before Christmas, so it was about five weeks prior to that, we were having dinner and he asked me to help him set up a YouTube channel. Initially, he wanted to do Minecraft. He used to play. We used to give him about, you know, a half hour, 40 minutes of screen time. He used to play Minecraft and he was reasonably good at it. But when we had a look, there was hundreds of thousands of people with Minecraft channels. So we were saying, like, you know, what else would we do? And he was a very funny kid himself and Dared, Great. And even Carly, you could see her sense of humor coming along. And um, so we decided we'd do comedy clips and, you know, it'd be nine year old sense of humor. So we started writing down. So I suggested that we write down ideas. So we had a notepad in the room here where we used to write down some ideas about little comedy sketches that we'd all be in, all five of us. We Then were going like when we had a bank of about 15 or 20 sketches, then we were going to start filming them. So I have the book there. There's about 12 in it. So we hadn't got around to starting the film, but that that thought came into my head literally hours after um, after I'd found their bodies. So Connor's clips were was always going to happen. So it's it's a, a YouTube channel, and I support that on Twitter and on Instagram. So I go in and 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 sort of it's one of the things that sort of drives me in the morning is in on my phone. It comes up on this day, so it's all the photographs from that day. Yeah, so. I, I'll go in and uh, if there's a photograph, I'll try and put a funny caption.
0: Oh yes, like the memories, yes
1: about it, and put it on Twitter and Instagram. So to keep Connor's clips going. So Connor was always he was, uh, you can see from his his uh, YouTube channel uh, himself and Dara did a, a Lego movie. It's uh, about forty five minutes long. They did it in ten different parts. It was just, I th- I think they were both destined for creative careers. In all honesty, so that was that was Connor's clips. So that literally came to me. In the hours after um after the kids uh, had died, so then because I thought about Connor's clips, I was going, "Geez, what what promises had I made to to Dara and to Carla?" So for Carla, I had promised her a snowman. I think it was November two thousand nineteen. There was a, a small scattering of snow, and I managed to put a snowman, probably the size of about a pint glass, together. And I remember looking at me going, "You know, what's that? That's not like I've seen ones on the telly the size of a of a of a dad." So I said to her, listen, you know, when it snows more, we'll build a bigger, I promise I'll build you a bigger snowman. And it's sure it never, it never did. So I thought she loved coloring. So we decided to do a, a snowman coloring competition. So uh, we we launched that, uh, the independent newspaper sponsored that last November, but uh, we're going to do a quarterly one through her own little website, snowmanforcarla.ie, uh, so yeah that'll be coming up now soon i should have a, a new one uploaded and there'll be uh just different age categories and, and there'll be small prizes and we'll do a summer one and an autumn one and a winter one again so that'll be carlos snowman coloring competition all year round and then the the, the charity that i have uh, was from dara's promise dara wanted me to um coach with uh, Rathcool uh, soccer team i i've gone up to, don't, uh, to do that um but I thought Dara was about much more than that. Whereas Connor played with Rathcool and he was in the drama club, he kind of knew exactly what he wanted. Dara was in the hurling, he was in the ga, he was in, he had gone over to the athletics, he had thrown his head into the scouts, he had joined Connor in the drama. Dara was about getting involved, and he was involved in everything. We were like his personal taxi service uh, to all the different stuff that he that he was doing. So I thought about that, and I thought. If we set up a charity that would encourage people to get involved as Dara did, then you know our, our community clubs and societies would, be, you know, be well funded and well supported. So that's the name of the charity. It's, it's as Dara did, and uh, you can find that online. And we we look for people to sign up for a monthly donation, so for as little as as the one, two or three euros, up to whatever amount per month. And every quarter we do a prize draw and uh in the past we we've given away a uh uh the winner got a, a signed uh match worn Jordan Henderson football jersey, the Liverpool captain. Uh previous to that it was a, a Man City jersey from the championship winning squad. So there's a a, a decent prize there for uh, anybody who um signs up for a monthly donation.
0: The initiative is great, you know, as Dara did, because, you know, even even looking at it there when I was reading about it, you know, and, and Dara was so into all of these things. And it's great that he wanted everybody else to do this and he wanted to be involved in so much and he had so much enthusiasm is rubbed off on other people. So I think that's brilliant that he you can continue that in his name, you know, and you can make other kids do, want to do all these things, too.
1: Yeah. And it's it's about. Getting involved, I mean, that one of the latest ones that we're considering is that there's a, a small village who want to get together and paint a mural at the each end of their village. And, uh, and it's just to get the community together. Uh, so we're considering that because it's per- people participating and getting involved. Uh, you know, it's not all sporting. We've, we've done uh, an autism center. We've helped out. We've helped out with a lad's shed in, in, in Limerick that are getting young people together where we've done a carton our swimming pool where there was the equipment given so that kids could come in and learn how to swim so participate in swimming so what we're looking for is projects where which encourage participation and involvement and, and we try and help out so and it's across the country so we're we're open for applications and we would encourage people to go onto the website see who have helped and uh and uh, to apply if they have uh, any sort of a group should it be a knitting circle to A rugby club we'll try and support.
0: The idea I love that I was reading about is the idea of the children's books. So I think that's great because there's so much potential for that. And you, from everything you've learned about mental health and the legacy of the children, I mean, it's such a great idea because... Even if it's um, if you keep it totally lighthearted, you can still put little messages there about mental health for kids. But the idea is all of the characters that you had, this homemade comic books and stuff and children's books, I think it's brilliant. It's a great idea.
1: Well, that's just how I've spent the first part of my day. The two lads, Connor and Dara, were just prolific. I'm looking at the box here. It's beside me of all their homemade comics. And they had a uh, several sort of unique characters that they made up. So I've identified about seven characters that I'm hoping to spend the rest of my life writing about. So the first one is a a kid called Preston, and Preston had some very bad habits. So he's going to learn the error of his bad habits from his friend Dara. He's going to learn everything from his big brother, Connor, and they're going to use their baby sister, Carla, for experiments to see what that
0: happens. That's wonderful. It's kind of a modern-day Dennis the Menace with three great influences to help him along.
1: In a, in a way, yeah. So he's going to have a few adventures, and then there's a, there's a, a as I say, about uh, six other characters that I've identified. So that's what I'm hoping to be able to do is to write kids' books that will have Connor, Darren, Carlos as supporting characters.
0: That's really good. I commend you for that because it's a really great idea, and that kind of a thing will. Keep their memories alive and keep their legacy alive, yeah
1: yeah,
0: yeah. I want to ask you, obviously, with everything that's happened, one thing that I saw that was kind of shocking was the Facebook trolls where you had to close the Facebook page, so why do you think people write nasty things about your situation? Do you think is it that they are thinking you of you in a different light or people are just like horrific in their thinking? What is it
1: I think it's. A lot of people who are horrific in their thinking. I would be an advocate for. I, I noticed that Philly McMahon wrote a a, a good piece in the uh, the Herald. I think it was uh, um, last week uh, about it too, about some of the abuse that he gets. And I, I would feel that anybody setting up a social media account should be asked to verify their identity. Yes, and that would stop an awful lot of stuff. Because what I what I see. Is profiles of people who I honestly do not think they that that is their opinion. I think they're sort of hijacked profiles or made up profiles. Um, I saw and it was predominantly on Facebook 99.9% of the stuff was on Facebook. It didn't seem to be. I get absolutely nothing on uh on Instagram or, or and virtually none on, on Twitter, but uh, Facebook, there was people who were claiming to be friends of the family who. We didn't know uh people, some vile, you know, comments about mental health and, you know, it just, whereas I I would, as I say, get the photograph off the day and I think, right, I'm going to do a funny comment about that. And I put it on Twitter, there would be a great reaction, put it on Instagram, there would be a great reaction. Then you put it on, you'd almost feel like oh, I have to go on Facebook, you know, and I would just put it on. And to the extent where there was a lot of very positive stuff, but. I I wouldn't look at it because I knew that in in the middle of it, there would be one vile comment. And you just think, no, like, so I just thought, no, uh, we have a charity page on there for the charity, but it's it's managed by uh, one of the volunteers for one of the trustees manages the page. So, I just don't get involved with, with Facebook, in all honesty.
0: Well, I mean, that's the problem with any kind of social media. Sometimes you are opening yourself up for comments. And you would think when it comes to sensitive and delicate situations that people would have more concern and more you know, uh, thoughts beforehand of what they say. Like I, I'm a firm believer, and I always say to people, if you have nothing good to say, don't say anything. But unfortunately, there are people out there who just, can't stop and and you have to wonder are these people do they think rationally at all because they obviously are angry at something and they want to express themselves and they're like these evil keyboard warriors but come on like just stop i always say to people stop if you're going to write stuff like that think about what you're doing
1: i do think there's people out there who just want to provoke a reaction so no matter you know if it's if it's somebody who's talking about weight loss yeah they'll just put in a comment about you know maybe I can't see any difference. And all the people who want to support the original post will come in, and you just imagine that this person is laughing, and then they'll go, they'll put in another comment just to provoke a reaction. And I think that's there is a huge amount of that. Whereas I think if there was verified accounts, that a lot of that would stop. Now, chances are somebody somewhere would bring up another platform that would allow unverified people And it would be a free-for-all, but I think I would love to see the day where Facebook and Instagram and and Twitter and the other main ones would uh, verify the uh, people who are posting.
0: Well, here's the thing. If you want to write something and you have a genuine Facebook account and you want to write, like, be a troll or write something bad on someone's comment box or whatever, if you actually take the time to set up a new Facebook account that's not real, just to write an, a nasty comment, it kind of says a lot about the kind of person you are, because it's one thing if you see something and it makes you feel a certain way, angry or sad or whatever, and you write a comment. But if you actually take the time to make a new page so nobody know who you are, you know, it's premeditated, isn't it?
1: It is. And uh, for me, it, it says a lot about I suppose, uh, the mental health of those type of people as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's true.
1: Which would suggest that uh, mental health is, is, is a bigger problem than what we currently see it to be. Um there's a lot that you don't see and that, that I mean I've I've learned a horrific lesson like that that you know, that you're not seeing the full picture it's like an iceberg.
0: Yes, you see the tip.
1: I mean everybody yeah, everybody you encounter, you know, should it be at work, should it be friends, should it be family, everything else, you there's a whole lot that you are possibly not seeing
0: i look there behind you and you know you're in in a nice sitting room with the teddy bears and the stuff behind you and you as you said you have the box of of comics and everything was it a decision to stay in the house was that a hard decision to continue living as you did or did you feel at one stage that you had to get away
1: no um like everywhere i look in the house there's more good memories of connor darren carla here than there is that one horrific day so I can look at everything. I mean, where I'm sitting now is the area that we used to call Carla's Corner. It was her area. The other room, the front room, was the two lads. Basically had everything in there. Do you know, just looking around, I'm sitting on a sofa where the two lads, one would start at this side and one the other side. It's a fairly long sofa. And I used to sit in the middle in the, and the game was to get to the other side over me. Okay, And I used to, like, you know, it's hold one back and, you know, and stuff like this so that it would be a, a fairly evenly matched contest uh, despite the age difference and stuff like that. Uh, you know, as say, I see their big box of comments or comics uh, and that's what I, I spent the morning doing was uh, typing up. Our, uh, I've, I'm have i well on the way now of over 20,000 words done on the book in relation to wow. bad, bad habits of seven-year-olds. So, which is which is quite fun to do. It was a hard decision. I mean, when, when we came back, I think the house was handed back to us on the Sunday night quite late. Um, so that would have been Sunday the 26th. And I, I came up and sure, it just said being, as I say, a crime scene. So it didn't feel like home. But the following morning, I think with my own sister and my two brothers and, and virtually every cousin that I have descended on the house and we set up Carter's corner. We set up the front room for the lads, you know, it, be, it became home again, you know, and it was, it was quite funny for some of their Lego was, was up. And I, I only heard the story recently. I was saying, right, the front room was where the lads. So, you know, we will set the room up in memory of the lads kind of for people coming for the, for the wake.
0: Yeah, I understand. I understand.
1: And, uh, so I said, Oh, there's some of their Lego creations upstairs, bring them down and we will put them in the front room. And, uh, it was a cousin and a friend of mine who, who went up and it was only recently that they were telling me that they were bricking themselves, bringing down these Lego creations in case a bit would fall off and it would be like disaster. <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, the, just the house is, is, is I suppose, a strange one, but there's a lot of very good memories here. Um, and it's, I suppose, a connection that I have with the kids this year.
0: It is. I, I can imagine in that case, because some people would say, oh, it's too hard to be around all of those memories. But by letting them go, then you're also you, so you can feel like you're losing a part of that. And it, it it wasn't very long ago. So I mean that it's for you when you see all of these things throughout the, you know, the rest of your time in this house, you can be looking and say, well, I might change this and I might do this. And every time you change a room or decorate, you might you know, put something away or you might say, I'm going to change this. That's all part of the process, isn't it?
1: I haven't kept their rooms the way that they had them. I didn't want it, their rooms to be, I suppose, shrines. But I understand some people who who lose loved ones want to keep their rooms the same. For me, that wasn't the case. Um, I've kept some of their books that were, I suppose, special or had special meaning. But a lot of their books I, I gave away. Kept some for D stuff like that. Their clothes, I've kept clothes, but then I'm looking at. There's a wardrobe and there's ah uh, the clothes that I you know I I felt a connection with. But then I'm saying, well, I haven't looked at these clothes in two years, and they should be worn, uh, you know. And it was the same with their toys. I mean, every six months we used to do a cull of toys and give away toys. So I felt, well, you know, this the lads would have wanted this. They would have wanted their toys to be played with. So again, you know, went to either the school or the creche or, or or family friends and stuff like that, so that it could be played with. Um, the two lads, um, they had a trampoline, and the trampoline was beloved. It was literally, there would be two or three hours a day that they could be out on the trampoline. Sometimes you would it would be dark and you'd be going, right, need to get the lads to bed, and they'd be out on the trampoline in the dark. So that trampoline is now with their cousins, We were a couple of years younger than, and and it's just that knowledge that it's still being bounced on and it's still being loved.
0: Yeah. And that's that legacy. That's that legacy you Mm -hmm. say, because, you know, all of their toys and their things, their trampoline is being used and that. Their memories are living on through that because, you know, their cousins are thinking, oh, this was my cousins and it's an extra special thing for them now. And even those clothes who go to kids, they might never know where they came from, but they're helping them. And in the same way, somebody is an organ donor. I mean, a life donor, you're giving the things that they valued and they. You know their books, their comics, their their toys are helping other children. So that's a marvelous thing.
1: Yeah, it's funny that came up recently. It's funny you should mention about organ donation because it was the one thing I kind of it never crossed my mind when the when the children died until it was it was afterwards. I thought, do you know something? It's it's something that I would have considered, but nobody mentioned and it. It's only afterwards then I I'd been advised then because there was post-mortems then.
0: Ah, oh, yeah, well, of course, it's a different story then. Yeah,
1: different right. story, but it, it's something that. uh you know had their had their deaths been different
0: you know it's been just over two years but they've given so much back and the thing is they've through your work and through everything that they had and other people have they've given back so much already and they've probably helped so many kids in the community so i mean right now they're not with you but you can be proud of them every day because they're still continuing to be amazing children in the eyes of people they help no
1: Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, people who would have uh, heard me being interviewed before would know that I I I went to see a medium, and uh, I asked her on the on the last visit. I I I went back to her. I'd been to her twice, and on the last visit, I asked what did the kids think of uh, their projects, and she said Dara straight away was saying that his is the biggest and the best, and I was kind of thinking, oh, that's probably kind of his, <laughs> Do you know, he's, he's not wrong. <laughs> But uh, so they seem to be proud of them. And, you know, you can think to yourself, that's just a, a, a medium, just, you know, being nice to me and, and saying stuff like that. But uh, she told me so many other things that uh, nobody could know that uh, I would I would believe yeah, that your spirit survives after you die.
0: Of course even if it doesn't survive somewhere else. I mean, right now we're seeing it. Their spirit is surviving and helping people all the time. Can I ask you, like I, I've seen where you have said, obviously with Deirdre's medical condition and somebody has obviously said to you before, how was your relationship with Deirdre? But I want to go a bit deeper and say, not only with Deirdre, but how was your relationship with her family?
1: Um, we were. It was a close relationship. I mean, Deirdre was from Dublin, so I would have seen, well... You know, whenever they would come to visit, I suppose, you know, a couple of times a year or whatever. But there was a, you know, it was a good relationship. I think, it, um, well, a couple of her um, siblings have sort of withdrawn a bit, but um, I still have very good contact with um, some of uh, the rest of her family. Um I think I, I, I can't really like they would need to speak for themselves. But for me, there's a number of her, her family that I have a very good relationship. Uh, who were in the house just recently, um, who I met up with. You know, we've all, all went up to the grave and stuff, but then there's uh, a couple of others who know there's, there's no relationship now.
0: Yeah, I can imagine because it's a very delicate thing. Because even if you have a situation where your partner dies and you're left with the children, it's a different dynamic than with the grandparents, obviously, they're coming around, but but in this situation, you know, because as you're the one left behind and her family can be there for a while and can drift away, but then one or two of them can say, no, we're always going to be there. So different things happen within different families in these situations, don't they?
1: Well, that's that's for them. I mean, I'm I'm still, you know, if there's a knock on the door and one of them wants to call around for a cup of tea, that's fine.
0: The last thing I'm going to ask you, we're going to kind of end it more on a brighter note. You know, if you look back at a time with Connor, Dara and Carla, is there one time, you know, that stands out in your memory of, of you all together, you the whole family as that kind of a great memory that you look back on? You know, is there have you any time?
1: Ah, there's 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 we were always doing stuff. That's what I would always say. There was very I mean, that's what everybody says when they look at all the photographs that that I post is that you were always doing something. And we were it was always, you know, so. Yeah. But a lot of the happiest times were just that we were just messing around in the house or in the garden or do you know that you would just decide, right, we're gonna climb the mountain and it'd be oh okay. well, you know, what mountain and it would be like up just up the Dublin mountain somewhere to Braddon or somewhere. you know, it wasn't strenuous, but for the kids it was a mountain. Do you know? But Yeah, yeah. Just being together.
0: Just being together. Do
1: you know, there's there was a lot of when Connor was playing football that, you know, we'd we'd go and support and she, and there's photographs of Carla and Dara on the sideline supporting their brother and stuff and it's just everyday normal stuff was just you, you find joy in the little things, you know, as a as a family. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what I would look at. But uh, I just think the three of them just had, had they just had fabulous senses of humor, like, you know, their sense of humor was just Connor was just such a funny kid and I was only chatting to somebody yesterday that whereas Connor would have been the sort of like stand up comedian. Dara would have been the slapstick sort of more physical comedian, you know, they were as tight together. I mean, you can see that from the from the clip where uh, Carla's in her little fairy costume and she goes into the two lads in the front room and they're either watching something or playing Lego or something. And she just starts waving her wand and says, right, I'm turning you both into frogs. (laughs) And uh, they play they go along with it. Yeah. you know I know that there's a lot of other families out there had a little three year old come in, gone waving her wand saying you're now frogs They would have went, No, we're watching this, you know, get yeah, out,
0: get out. The Yeah, the
1: lads played along because yeah. it was gonna be a bit of crack and a bit of
0: fun and that's what it just they had that banter between them.
1: It summed up the relationship between the three of them. It really did for for me, you know.
0: I can imagine in those situations it's lovely when you think back to those times and you know, now the ideas of the memories and, and you know, for everything you've gone through, it's been really difficult. But you have to hang on to those good memories and that time you had together and know that you were a great father and you're still a great father, you know, but you they were very happy and you know, it, it's it's you had an amazing time together, and and even though it wasn't the longest time, it was like you know nine, seven, and three, three, yeah. It was still it's something you can cherish forever. You know, we're gonna let you go now, but I wanna commend you for. You know, your bravery, as I said earlier, and for continuing this work and, and for, for doing something new that, you know, people have done things like this before, but in different ways. So this thing you're doing is something new and it's taking a very dark situation and making it into something, a, a real shining light that can help other people and help you too, I hope. So I want to say well done and anything we can help you with on the show, we'd love to help you with, you know?
1: Yeah, well, for me now, it's, it's I suppose, these projects keep their memory alive and, and give them a life that they didn't have in a way. And it's, I think, lets me let all of you know that you once shared this world with three magnificent kids called Connor, Darren Carr.
0: Exactly. Yes, yes. Before you go, um, do you want to tell us about any events? I know you have some events coming up in the summer and stuff, don't you? Uh,
1: well, we've done the raffle for the Daniel O'Donnell concert. So, Daniel, that concert will be happening in June. But, you know, the... the the winners will all be in attendance. Okay. But uh, anybody who would like to help us with a monthly donation, there's an opportunity to win a, a fabulous prize every quarter. But, uh, you know, if they would like to sacrifice a, a cup of coffee and donate €3 Euros a month, brilliant. If they wanted to do €5 Euros a month, fantastic. Just any contribution and... uh It it, will go to worthy uh, causes around the country and uh, help people get involved in their local communities.
0: I mean, that's great. And we will, you know, help you promote as Dara did. And we will point people in that direction. We'll put all the links and everything. You know, thank you once again, Andrew McGinley and look after yourself. Take care and hopefully we will speak to you again sometime in the future.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Andrew McGinley, everybody. Okay, thank you very much, Anna McGinley. It was a pleasure having you on the show. And I want to say thank you for sharing all of the details that have happened since that terrible event. And we want to commend you and say well done for all the work you're doing, continuing the legacy projects for the children and setting up the charity as Dara did, Connor's Clips, and a snowman for Carla. This is great work. And I'm sure this is helping lots of people, as we spoke about in the podcast earlier. So, Well done on all of this. And we will post all relevant links in the podcast info. Thank you again, Andrew McGinley. So thank you, everybody, for listening to this show. And if you or anybody you know is in need of any kind of support or help or you're affected by the issues in this show, we will post some relevant links below to help you out. And please go and talk to somebody because everybody has issues and it's the people around us who help us. We just want to make sure we get that message out there. Once again, as I say, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to the show. And we will talk to you soon. Look after yourself. Look after your family. Take care, everyone. My name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisperer podcast. Bye bye. <laughs>